the second annual Speaking Municipally Transit Update. This week, we're covering everything you need to know about transit in Edmonton for this last year and this upcoming year. Actual friend of the podcast, Carrie Houghton McDonald, joins us once again to answer all our questions. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 170. We are one of Taproot Edmonton's podcasts, but our sister podcast, Bloom, which we've talked about before, about innovation in Edmonton, is actually branching out and is, has a recent episode that's not just about tech innovation. Yeah, Bloom is on to episode eight, and uh, the intent was never for the podcast to be only about tech, but oftentimes we hear the word innovation and we immediately think of Silicon Valley and tech. But, but this latest episode is a good example of how that's not the case. In the episode, uh, Emily Rendell Watson and Faiza Ramji are hosts talk to Martin Garber-Conrad, who is the about-to-be-retired CEO of the Edmonton Community Foundation, all about innovation in philanthropy. So that's a really interesting podcast uh, episode if you want to check that out. A very, very quick story. As you know, listener, I live on 104th Street, and I uh, would see uh, Martin Garber-Conrad walk down my street every single day in shorts going to Credo to get a coffee. So I'm convinced that the key to innovation is habit, ritual, routine. Of course, our routine that gets us to success is the rapid fire segment. After a significant outcry from residents, community leagues, and active transportation advocates, which called for more consultation, EPCOR agreed to further consult on their proposed bike lane closure at 102 Avenue and 116th Street. This week, the city-owned corporation embarked on an extensive, far-reaching consultation in which they talked to six drivers and every single one of them were fine with it. The Alberta government is investing $72 million in charter schools with Budget 2022. In announcing the funding, Premier Kenny said that charter schools, which he insisted are absolutely public schools, are the best institutions in the province to effectively teach the students of tomorrow that we've always been at war with Eurasia. The past couple years have been difficult with supply chain disruptions in virtually every industry, and another is about to hit Edmonton. Alberta's capital city could soon see a rapid decline in slum houses targeted at the city's vulnerable, gang war-driven arsons, and bodies being dumped in concrete garage foundations. We tried to contact the individual best positioned to provide those, Abdullah Shah, but he was unavailable to comment. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this week, we are happy to plug fellow APN member Three Kitchens, which is a home cooking podcast. Whether you enjoy cooking or just like good food, you can join them every Tuesday as they share recipes, tips, and kitchen adventures. And here's a clip. In a world where boring dinners and ungrateful children make cooking almost unbearable. Whoa, that's a little too dramatic. Let's try this again. I'm Heather Dyer. I'm Erin Wager. And I'm Sarah Somasundaram. This is Three Kitchens, a podcast about home cooking. Whether you like cooking or you just like eating, join us to talk about food. We'll have new episodes of Three Kitchens every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Three Kitchens. They'll tickle your funny bone, wet your appetite, and warm your heart. Did that guy think he was Bruce Wayne? <laughs> I kind of liked it, actually. He made us sound super badass. <laughs> you can find Three Kitchens wherever you get your podcasts. It's been just about a year since she was last on the podcast, but who knows, it may become a annual occurrence. We thought it would be a good time to do another checkup with the ETS branch manager, Carrie Houghton McDonald. So she has graciously decided to come join the podcast once again. I'm not sure why guests come on, much less a second time, but she's done it. Joining us once again to talk about transit ETS branch manager, Carrie Houghton McDonald. Welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks so much. Thanks for having me back. Neener, neener. I was right. You were wrong. (laughs) I also wanted to start off by saying, and I hope that listeners are sitting down, Troy, you were right. (laughs) (laughs) We are, of course, in this case, talking about SmartFair, which you optimistically said was coming last year. And we are now in 2022 without the SmartFair. Now, that's not entirely true. We do have SmartFair or our ARC uh, card rolled out to some groups. So our UPASS users are using it. And we've had more than just a little over 500 Edmontonians testing it uh, with us since January, getting ready in the next few months for launching our adult users in the ARC system. And I'm really excited about that. This year, definitely. Yes, we're doing phased implementation, I promise. And uh, we've been getting excellent feedback from our pilotiers and we're working with our vendor. We're really excited. It's going to be a game changer. We're going to be lowering the price for a single trip from $350 to $3. We're introducing fare caps, which means if you're someone who does a lot of trip chaining and you have multiple stops, which a recent study showed a lot of women uh, fall into that category, you'll have daily caps that contribute to a monthly cap. So you're not going to be overpaying and then you can load your card as you go. So no longer will you have to upfront the full cost of a monthly pass all at once. You can incrementally load your card. So I'm really excited about those changes. We're actually going to be the first property in the country to offer the fair capping model, uh, which I think is really neat for Edmonton to be leading in that way. What What is some of the feedback that you've heard from the pilot? What are people saying about it? Are you seeing the kind of usage that you hoped from the test users? Are there significant changes you're thinking about or things you're going to have to do before it rolls out to other groups? Yeah, for sure. So they've been super helpful in uh, testing. It's, you know, as you go about your transit journey, if you think about the fair payment component, it's everything attached to that. So how the card has been working in terms of tapping um, as you are on the bus and then tapping off, uh, feedback about loading cards, the customer support side of it. It's been super helpful. Um, Really appreciate everybody kind of contributing. We actually extended the pilot for an extra couple of months to continue getting that feedback. Back. Love to hear it. Well, and I think we want to get it right. So <laughs> knowing it's it's behind, you know, in some ways we just figured it's more important to make sure we get this right and let's keep going. And the pilotiers were super excited to continue to help us. Again, I'm, you know, really looking forward to it. I've also been testing it and it's been fun to just experience it. And as I mentioned before, it feels like a really important step towards a big city transit. And that feels really cool to bring that to Edmonton. So the only person on this podcast right now that doesn't have an art card is you, Mac, right? Yeah, my wife has one. I do not. I was not accepted for the pilot. That was not intentional, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> the art card is being launched now. Obviously, part of the art card being successful going forward is people being on the bus. Uh, we can't effectively test. And part of the advantage of the art card is, you know, we get all this ridership data. Currently, our ridership data shows that approximately no one is riding transit. Is that, is that an oversimplification? Uh, how is our pandemic recovery going on our bus system? I'm really glad you're starting with this because I want to, you know, thank those who have been using transit. There, there's more than just myself on buses, which is lovely. And I've been on the trains and the trains are doing really well. So we actually hit our highest level of ridership recovery in the last month. So we're at 69% of normal. Nice. And it's continuing to go up. So I'm, you know, again, just really appreciative. And I think got a lot of cool 
stuff coming that is going to, I think, make it even easier for people to choose transit. We're also going to do some uh, space activations. We're going to have street teams out. Special services for festivals and events is starting up again. Uh, This summer, we've got bikes allowed on the LRT. We implemented that change in the fall. So any time of day, you know, any day of the week, people can uh, bring their bikes. We're testing out some bike storage lockers. Um, I'm just, again, you know, looking forward to seeing more people using transit and working on making it that convenient kind of reliable service that people want. Do you think we'll get back up to pre-pandemic levels or is it going to be something different that we see as the sort of new normal? Well, I think for most transit agencies in the country and, you know, we talk regularly and we all agree there's probably going to be a shift. I think, you know, that's generally accepted that it's going to look a little bit differently. And what we're all focused on is improving the transit experience so that hopefully that helps offset whatever kind of changes we might see from people coming back. So I think there'll be a combination of some growth and a combination of most people coming back. I do think perhaps some of the travel behavior might be a bit different. And I'm looking forward to, again, seeing how it goes, I'd say for the next probably six months in particular, um, to see what that transition looks like and um, how people are using it. Are you able to do any modeling or projections around the impact of like hybrid working uh, arrangements or, or increased work from home? You know, even as things open up, not everyone is going back to the office full time like they once did. Is that factoring into uh, your plans for the system? It is. So we have a model developed uh, where we actually assess, it's about 10 different factors, external factors that affect ridership decisions. So we monitor that. We have a best case scenario, a worst case, and then a most likely, and we keep updating it and monitoring it closely. I would say Edmonton in particular fared a bit better than some of the other cities. And we actually had, you know, ridership hovering in that kind of 50% range throughout the pandemic, which a lot of other cities didn't have that. They had much lower levels. Um, And even now, our ridership recovery is ahead of cities like Toronto, and we're on par with Vancouver. And if you think about the density that Vancouver has, you know, Edmonton certainly isn't quite there. (laughs) And again, I think we're doing quite well. A lot of Edmontonians uh, don't have the luxury of working remotely. You know, they've been working throughout the pandemic, and they continue to use transit. So you mentioned in your talk about modeling, the phrase that we've heard quite a lot in the past two years, which is, you know, best case, worst case, and the sort of expected middle ground case of modeling. And we've heard about that in regards to COVID-19 and various spikes and flatten the curves that we've talked about. I don't know if it's a pessimistic view to say that in my mind, another wave of COVID is an inevitability. It is definitely coming. Is that the opinion of Edmonton Transit? And Is there any planning for such an event? Are there nimble sort of fallbacks in place such that if COVID comes back in a big way, the transit system is ready and able to adapt? For sure. There's a couple of things that I'll highlight. So in that kind of modeling, some of the external variables we consider is definitely other waves of the pandemic. And quick funny story, in the early days of doing the modeling, I laughed when someone said, you know, we're going to see a third wave. And I said, no way. Like, we are never going to see a third wave. Don't be so pessimistic. (laughs) Once again, I was wrong. (laughs) 
So that's one part. So yeah, we're absolutely considering in one of the scenarios that we could see another wave. I really hope we don't. I'm looking forward, just like everybody else is, that maybe we're at the point where we start to come out of this. The second piece I would say related to thinking about our resilience is that we're introducing UV air purification technology on our buses and on our trains. And that install, the RFP is finished. Those installs should be starting in the fall. So that means our air quality is going to be even further improved making sure that everybody can be safe and healthy while they use transit. So I'm really looking forward to that change too. Random question, just because I lost the thread on it. Do our buses have air conditioning at this point? Did we complete that work? Newer buses come with air conditioning, which is really important, I think. Older buses do not. The operator compartments, because of the retractable bus shields, and I had lots of very frank feedback from operators saying, it's like a greenhouse. <laughs> if the middle of summer, you have your, your shield up. So we installed HVAC units for the operator compartment to support the safety of when they have their operator shields uh, in the upright position. So that's air conditioning for the driver, not for the rest of the bus? Did I get that right? So newer buses have it on the entire bus. And then for the older fleet, we put it into the operator compartment, knowing that we're going to be replacing the fleet. We will get air conditioned buses as the fleet gets replaced. Got it. Okay. Obviously, it is still a requirement that people wear masks on transit and council has looked at potentially extending that with a bylaw. Do you think masking should be required on transit beyond any provincial mandate? I think right now, and what we heard from the Edmonton Transit Service Advisory Board, which is a group of volunteers from the community representing kind of transit users, is their desire is to have it for a little bit longer. So they wanted to extend it for a few more months. I understand the reasoning. We still have some people who are not eligible, as you know, uh, for vaccines, so particularly for our little ones. And, you know, out of respect for those two perspectives, I totally understand. Uh, and I would be comfortable extending it. I think we do need at some point to think about what off board looks like, but I would want to do that with the community and not just uh, unilaterally kind of making the decision. I think it's important to, you know, trust the advisors and listen to what the community is is talking about. Uh, so I think the next place we'll go, given that we're talking about masks, ostensibly safety, is the hot button item that's on everyone's mind. Um, transit, safety, and security, whether or not transit is unsafe, uh, if you read posts on Reddit, you will know that it is the next front line of an endless war if you go on transit. It is the most unsafe place you could be in Edmonton at any point in time is on our transit system. That's um, definitely one perspective that we see on the internet. Where does it actually fall? How safe is our transit system? And how has that changed sort of like pre-pandemic? Have we seen a material shift in transit disorder? So a couple of things on that note. So one, you know, I respect everybody's perspective. And I think if you're feeling unsafe, whether or not the actual kind of disorder incidents are escalating, you feel unsafe. I respect that. And I want to show compassion and kind of help people feel safer. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is we monitor very closely what our disorder rate looks like, uh, as well as perceptions of safety. And we are experiencing, I think, some very extraordinary um, circumstances 
that are making people feel uneasy and unsafe. Overall, though, in about the last five or six years, perceptions of safety have only dropped by 2% in our research. And, you know, it's statistically significant and uh, all that jazz. In terms of the feedback, disorder has actually been dropping since mid-fall. So since about October, it's been dropping. So I know that doesn't bring a lot of comfort for those that feel like maybe it's not as safe as it could be. We also know we have two, I'm going to call them, you know, I think they're crisis situations. One is we have a lack of sheltering options that are low barrier for people who are seeking shelter and don't have a home who are houseless. And they're taking shelter within the transit spaces. The second thing is we've got a drug poisoning overdose crisis. And I know you've you've had guests kind of talking about that um, who have much more experience and expertise than I do. Um, but those two sets of circumstances, I think, are also contributing to some of the feelings that people have. And our partnership with Bent Arrow, our community outreach transit teams, working with our transit peace officers have had over almost a thousand interactions with people since it launched in the fall, providing outreach support, trying to connect people with supportive resources, whether that be, let's say, food or clothing or addiction support, mental health support. There's a definite need and people are in our spaces and we're trying to provide that support. And the last thing I would add is we have requested additional patrolling for true kind of criminal activity from EPS and we're working with them. Uh, We presented to council uh, towards the end of February an updated plan for having joint patrols between the transit peace officers as well as EPS um, to help address some of those issues as well. So in addition to increasing the outreach side, we're also looking for that support too. And indeed, council approved $3.9 million to extend that community outreach transit team pilot for three years and to implement this joint dispatch between Bantero, the police, and the city. I want to go back to something you said. You've essentially, I think, in what you just described to us, said that perceptions of safety have declined by only 2%. And you monitor the disorder rate very closely, and it's not all that different than it was before. So How does that square up with what we're hearing from the police association and to some extent the police service who have said that there's an epidemic of crime on transit right now and they regularly share photos of people with machetes and weapons? Did those things used to happen? It just didn't, wasn't as visible because there was more ridership. Are they cherry picking examples in your opinion? How, how, how do we match those two perspectives up here? That's a very good question. (laughs) I think context is important. So right now we have over 130,000 rides per day. So if you think about the network and you think about 130,000 different rides, the vast, vast majority are very safe. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say, police, you know, is responsible for criminal matters. So when, and I want to be respectful that they are part of our enhanced Uh, safety plan. I've had a good working relationship uh, with one of the inspectors in particular. She's been quite helpful. But I will say that when we hear about um, those stories, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, what is your plan for addressing the crime that's happening in those spaces then. Right. Um, And I think that's an important part of this enhanced safety plan is working together 
you know, understanding their components and how it complements the other components, uh, like the great work being done by Bentero and the TPOs and others. Um, it's, it's the collective. And I know, you know, we've heard others refer to it as that larger kind of ecosystem. And I do think there's a role for a lot of different players within the space, you know, including AHS. And we've had some great conversations about uh, getting some of their kind of outreach and support workers in the space as well. Uh, so I'm optimistic. I think it's going to require a collective effort by a lot of people looking after all the different components. And ultimately, I want to find some, <laughs> and this is my personal opinion and professionally, we need to find sheltering solutions for people because to think of a cold concrete floor in a pedway or transit center as being appropriate shelter is really heartbreaking and they deserve better and they need more support than that. That's what's keeping me up at night, to be honest with you. Yeah, 100%. They're not adequate sheltering options and, and we need to have more of that. Troy, the other day on Twitter, declared that it is spring <laughs> and the snow is all gone. So it's going to get warmer, which means people won't need to be inside the transit centers, the LRT stations as much as they were. Is that factored into how we're evaluating this pilot? Like, I'm a little worried that council just approved this money for transit security. The police are now involved we're getting into the warmer months, there's going to be a report that's going to say, you know, incidents are down and they're going to take credit for it when really it's that the weather's nicer and people are outside. I think any good evaluation considers all of the variables contributing to the results. So you look at your external variables as well as those that you have direct control over. So that's absolutely factored in. And there's definitely seasonal variations without a doubt. The fact that it's going to be a three-year journey, I think gives us that um, appropriate length of time to really monitor the effectiveness and consider, hopefully we get those other layers of support addressing. And I keep going back to root causes. Like what are the root causes of these issues? Because I, as we've seen, we can throw a lot of money at these issues. And we've seen other cities that have really responded heavily with an enforcement response. Very little, you know, care and consideration for root causes and the need for outreach support. Um, New York City comes to mind. I was uh, reading about their approach. And, you know, frankly, it's a bit frightening to think that they're not considering you know, the other, I think, equally as important um, component of this approach that's needed to, to take care of people on all sides of it. Again, from a compassionate lens, it's important for riders. And I think of, you know, kids going to school and people trying to get to work, elderly folks trying to get to their appointments and get groceries. And they deserve to have a safe experience just as much as people who are in need of those supports and sheltering deserve to have the care and kind of appropriate supports. And ultimately, you know, if there is crime happening, uh, we need to also, you know, prevent that and stop that from taking place in those spaces so everybody can feel safe. I want to just do a quick point of clarification, because earlier you had said that uh, incidences of disorder were down and then Mac had said that the rate of disorder was down. I want to clarify, is it a total quantity of disorder that is down on the transit system or is it disorder per capita or disorder per ride metric that's down? Thanks for clarifying. So there is a standardized measure that's used uh, within transit and it is a disorder rate per 100,000 rides. So that's the key performance measure that 
Uh, we track and monitor, and I believe it's available publicly on the website as well. Uh, we do it on a monthly basis and then an annual basis as well and report that to council Perfect. in any reports that we do. Thanks. I want to pose a quick hypothetical to you. So imagine there's a city like Edmonton, but completely different uh, legally from Edmonton. And now imagine you have a police service that is taking a political stance in order to get their budget increases and is doing something like working to rule and not enforcing particular areas of the city uh, in order to show disorder and in order to, in a sense, extort city council in order to increase their budget. Now, this, again, is a legally distinct and hypothetical city. Now, if one was a branch manager of a transit service in that city, and this was the case that this was happening, hypothetically, what would an effective action to take be in order to combat this partner not engaging faithfully in this hypothetical uh, situation? So hypothetically speaking, I would say there are some really good lessons learned in terms of relationship building. So again, purely hypothetical, but establishing those really strong relationships at, let's say, at the inspector level or looking at kind of the people responsible for the areas that we're talking about, shared kind of governance and decision making and regular meetings and brainstorming together, problem solving together. I think that's really critical. And, you know, there's the potential for a lot of noise and a lot of politics and a lot of, I'll just say posturing, but ultimately there's a lot of good people who are trying to work through this together, um, bringing diverse perspectives to the table to navigate some very challenging circumstances that require, as I said before, you know, kind of a full suite of tools to get at some of the root causes to, uh, you know, to address these issues. All right. Well, not so hypothetical. One of the things we do have in our LRT stations are security guards and I genuinely do want to know, what do they do? <laughs> because uh, I'm sure they do a great job and they are, uh, you know, fulfilling their duties effectively, but as not the anecdotal stories that we hear, that I regularly hear about folks congregating in the stations, potentially doing drugs in the stations, whatever, and the security guards are essentially turning a blind eye. So why do we pay for them to be there? So a couple things uh, that I'll start with. So we've had uh, almost a 400% increase in calls for service into our 24-7 transit control center, which is like our, our central hub kind of managing the service. And they dispatch all the emergency responses uh, necessary. So since the guards were in place, so we've seen about a 400% increase directly because of having those roles there doing the surveillance and monitoring. So that's been really helpful to make us aware of the situations. And then we can obviously dispatch the appropriate support resources. Um, recently, we also added uh, naloxone training and supply to the security guard roles. So they've been intervening in any kind of reported drug poisoning and overdose situations. Uh, mm -hmm. They've been able to respond as an interim immediate kind of step while the emergency resources are responding. Uh, they're also intended to be able to provide some customer support. So for anyone who's looking for assistance, they are uh, there to provide that type of support. So while police has responsibility for very specific criminal matters, by contacting the control center for non-criminal things, they can also uh, advise of the details of what's happening and then a transit peace officer can arrive and respond to whatever the situation is. So they're, they're helping the control center navigate kind of what's the appropriate level of support that needs to be in that space. Having said all of that, it's a contracted model. Anytime 
it looks like someone isn't kind of performing the role uh, to the extent that they ought to be. It's a quick phone call to us uh, through 311. We do investigations. We do audits. We regularly talk to the contractor and get people replaced if they're not meeting our expectations. It's intended to be that extra layer, uh, again, of surveillance and monitoring and allowing a more timely and more specific response for us to whatever's happening in the space. It's just another layer in the framework. Yeah. Eyes and ears on the ground. Okay. Thank you. Exactly. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about one of the current struggles that very recently is probably affecting ETS, and that is the price of gasoline. I've heard from the premier that it is so dire a need that we need to revoke a 13 cents a liter gas tax. I imagine the price of gas has a pretty material effect on the ETS's bottom line. And I imagine that uh, what you said were at roughly 50 to 60% of our pre-pandemic ridership level, that also has an effect on the ETS bottom line. To what extent does ETS have to be flexible? How tightly are you balancing your budget? Are, is the budget balanced month to month? When gas prices shoot up, do you have to cut routes for that month? How do you actually mitigate the damage of these vast commodity swings? So I have great finance wizards that help me. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to give a shout out to our finance folks. They're fantastic. So we have uh, lots and lots of budget related kind of work. So we definitely do monthly financial reporting. Uh, we monitor very closely. I've been very, uh, I'm probably erring on the side of a little too cautious on the expenditure side. So really careful about expenditures. You know, we've scraped and kind of scaled back as much as we can. And then working closely with finance again on the the fuel pricing side, they do things like hedging. We also know that we were faring quite positively on the on the fuel side before. So in a four-year cycle, you might find that it balances out through the swings up and down. On the ridership side, one of the things I've been observing is in the news media as we talk about fuel pricing, and I heard another report about the increased cost of car ownership, I have a solution. <laughs> we have a really great frequent transit network. And even even myself, you know, I use transit to get to and from work and I'm looking around at people who are choosing transit with me and, you know, I want to high five them. <laughs> I'm excited. It's like I have a solution, you know, if it doesn't make sense for people to have that expenditure right now. And I understand it's hard and a lot of people are having a hard time through the pandemic and have lost their jobs and all those types of things. We have lots of fair supports in place to help people access transit and uh, we can be a really great solution. Uh, I did want to quickly read just one sentence from the city's uh, most recent financial update. So this is for the calendar year 2021. Favorable budget variance due to a significant number of newer buses in service that are more fuel efficient and a favorable impact resulting from the city's practice of hedging fuel contracts. So it was a $3.6 million positive variance, which the report at least is attributing to some extent to having more efficient buses. So pays dividends during those commodity swings. Absolutely. And I will say by getting those newer uh, buses into the fleet, they're absolutely are savings. Um, they are more fuel efficient. And again, as I mentioned before, I'm really excited about the journey we're on for electrification, looking at hydrogen uh, as a potential. We have a bus arriving this summer that's a hydrogen fuel bus. And that, I think, has tremendous potential for us. So one of the things that's uh, been confirmed both from the federal government and the provincial government is that there is some money coming to support transit operations. How are you going to spend it? You know, uh, Santa just gave you a $150 million total. How much Edmonton gets, we'll see. Sure. Hey, where, where are you going shopping? <laughs> 
So this is the second installment of uh, operating budget relief for public transit. So for all of us in Alberta, you know, we've all been experiencing ridership uh, issues related to the pandemic. So I am just very, very, very grateful for the support of both levels, grateful for all the advocacy. So between the municipalities, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, Big City Mayor's Caucus, and the Canadian Urban Transit Association, uh, everyone has just been working really closely together to try and make this happen. And it came through. It was a really exciting day for us. And what it does is it helps the overall city budget by offsetting the revenue loss that we had on the transit side. Um, so in this instance, uh, our actuals from last year, you know, will in large part be offset by this relief funding. So it helps us uh, be a little bit more balanced. And instead of having to pull from the financial stabilization reserve, uh, they're able to use this funding to offset that loss. And again, we're coming out of the pandemic. Ridership is recovering. So this is a short-term temporary problem. And I'm just really grateful that they saw the need to support us. One thing that's part of the news that I want to quickly cover is the regional transit piece. We keep hearing this jump into the news. Uh, I believe it was supposed to be operational in just a couple of months, but of course it's been delayed now till next year. The regional transit, uh, what, it, what is the absurd acronym, Mac? EMTSC, the Edmonton Metropolitan Transit Services Commission. Love it. Rolls right off the tongue. Totally. Is this on track? Where are we with that? And are you worried about them usurping your job? <laughs> You get right to it, don't you? You jump right in there. <laughs> so um, that project was underway. Uh, I believe it started through an MOU between St. Albert and the City of Edmonton, I want to say back in 2018. And a roundtable of elected officials were working on uh, what might it look like if we had a regional uh, commission overseeing transit service for the region. 13 municipalities ultimately signed on to explore the concept and see what this might look like. They had a grant from the provincial government, hired uh, an external third-party consultant to lead the business case development. And then as you'll recall, I think it was February of 2020, so just before the world changed, City Council at the time voted uh, to agree to be a seat at the table and form the uh, commission. So it's kind of external commission uh, to the city where we have a seat at the table. Ultimately, eight municipalities agreed, uh, so five decided Decided it wasn't for them. Of the eight, there's a board of directors with one uh, seat assigned to each person. They hired a CEO uh, who presented to our council this week uh, an update on their plans. So the CEO reports to the board and is overseeing the plans. So local service for the other seven municipalities and then the intermunicipal service, so any bus service running between uh, the regions, is part of the phase one of operations from the commission. Now, Edmonton's portion uh, and what it looks like is all being reviewed as part of this phase one. And what we're waiting for, and we talked about a bit with council this week, is we need to see their phase one operations plan, of which we're supporting. We're at the table along with all of our colleagues from the other municipalities to take a look and see what they want to do. And then we have to analyze that uh, relative to our bus network and see what we can contribute and then give advice and our analysis to our council for them to make, uh, ultimately it's their decision and we need to get direction from them about what's their vision for this, how much do they want to contribute, where does it come from, what does it mean for Edmontonians, what does it mean for our network, what does it mean for our fleet, what does it mean for the workforce and all of those important kind of components that we need to get flushed out. So, you know, if you ask me 
uh, let's say sometime mid-fall, I'll have a much better answer in terms of what the impact is for Edmonton. But right now, I just, I don't know yet. Uh, more to come. So not worried about your job right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love my job. I love the people I work with. And I trust, uh, you know, that good things have a way of, of working out. And I'm not concerned. It's it's honestly like it's a privilege to be able to lead uh, the 2,200 people that I work with. And I'll do it for as long as I can. Sort of running tandem to the uh, launch of the EMTSC is an expansion potentially of the bus network. We, of course, did the bus network redesign uh, pre-pandemic and then it got delayed because everything changed. Uh, but it is now the law of the land. The buses run uh, on different... Uh, frequencies and we have the new bus network redesign launched uh, if you listened to uh, journalists in the city you may find that it hasn't been changed at all but you have kindly emailed us and told us that there have been many improvements that have been made in the past uh, year and a half to the bus network there certainly have so i believe i even alluded to it the last time we chatted that i knew we would need to show that we were listening and adapting and it wouldn't be perfect from the start so since it was launched which is almost a year, yeah just i think we're 1 month short of a year yeah, so almost a year ago we have made more than 60 different adjustments directly based on the feedback from edmontonians so as they've used it and navigated it they've shared feedback with us and we've incorporated that into changes really simple example we heard i heard firsthand at the transit centers from construction workers and healthcare workers saying that our buses didn't start early enough so we were starting service on some routes i think it was at like 5:20 in the morning they were saying you know it would be better if it's started at five and here's why. And they explained their shift structure. And I just thought that is really great feedback. So we went back as a team and said, can we actually make that happen? And we were able to. So it's direct feedback from Edmontonians. Uh, we've been monitoring and measuring perceptions and satisfaction related to implementing the network. And about a third of Edmontonians are saying the ser their service has improved, the timing has improved. So their trip time to the final destination, the onboard uh, time has improved and their wait times have improved. So I'm really pleased with those results. Honestly, I would have been happy with even 10% being content uh, with those elements. I think overall, the increased frequencies, um, as I mentioned, we've got, you know, six minute frequencies on some routes. Uh, I'm really happy to see that combined with moving to a higher frequency on the train side. You know, the two kind of work really well together, in my opinion. What about the other two thirds? So it's not that they're unhappy. Uh, so when we look at the distribution, uh, the large major majority are in the middle saying, I haven't really noticed many changes. Um, mm. So, you know, I'm neither thrilled nor am I angry about it. And then we've got about 17% that'll acknowledge uh, that they're not as pleased, but that's to be expected. You're always going to have that kind of bell curve uh, happening. Right. Yeah. And uh, I understand there are more changes expected this year. Uh, any major changes or is it going to be a continual uh, minor refinement based on feedback as you've done over the last year? Yeah, so we're excited. We've got a report going forward. Um, so that report is actually next week. We're going to be executive committee talking about it. And what we've done is responded to opportunities within budget. That's our first priority is what can we pull off with existing budget? So we've made some uh, tweaks and adjustments. And then we're also looking at what can we do on the on-demand side uh, to make sure we're as efficient as possible with those hours. So we're adding some service and kind of redistributing some of the on-demand service hours 
So we were able to launch service uh, on the south side for the hills at Charlesworth community. We're looking at uh, some neighborhoods on the southwest. So the Glen Ridding Ravine comes to mind. And then on the north side, uh, we are adding quite a few communities based on some feedback. So we've got Clairvatten, we've got Baldwin, North Chambry, North Elsnor. Uh, we're looking on the west side at Stillwater and Upland. So it's a redistribution of the existing hours. We're presenting two really cool opportunities for growth, and that would be dependent on council's direction. But when the Valley Line Southeast is running, the service hours right now deployed in lieu of the trains, so the 510X, we could take those hours and repurpose them into the network if council chooses to do so uh, once the Valley Line is operating. And then the other opportunity would be if they wanted to grow on the on-demand side, uh, we could look at uh, some other neighborhoods that we could serve uh, through that or address some of the walking distance challenges that have been shared with us. Do you have a preference for how that gets redistributed? I know you'll take council's direction and whatever they say, but what would you like to see happen? Yeah, so for the Valley Line uh, bus hours, we did make some recommendations. So we know that there's work underway around bus rapid transit for Tewilliger Drive. Uh, I'm excited for BRT. I think we also need more transit priority measures, and I'm hopeful they're going to revisit that uh, sooner than later to help with you know things like uh, letting buses through uh, lights, so having priority queuing and that type of thing. In terms of neighborhoods, we know that we want to uh, extend some hours, provide better frequencies, some late night service. So neighborhoods like Chappelle, uh, we want to do late night service. Uh, we got Rosenthal, some suggestions there, some crosstown routes. So the 53, 54 and 56, uh, we want to support, you know, the mass transit network. And I was so excited for that report. I feel like we've had a lot of transit reports lately, but that one also went in February talking about what do we need to do to prepare for a city of 1.25 million. It identified some key corridors and some key improvements we can make to get ready for that. I think many people are happy that there have been changes made since the initial rollout of the bus network plan. It's good to hear that there's potential opportunities. You know, that doesn't sound surprising. Like you said, last time you were on the show, you knew that there was going to need to be changes made. You knew that you weren't going to please everybody. And so now you're a year into it feeling good about how well that has gone. I'm wondering if there's anything that has surprised you over this last year, the first year of the the new bus network, anything like that you really had no anticipation of whatsoever. Um, one thing that has surprised me, and I don't know how much we can attribute it to the bus network redesign itself, but just our ridership recovery being on par with that of uh, the greater Vancouver region has really, really surprised me. And the fact that we're well ahead of Toronto, so we have 69% of normal levels. Uh, the last update I had from them, they were at about 51 or 52% of normal. That really surprises me. I would, as I did assume that urban, you know, dense kind of uh, environments would recover much more quickly than we would, but it hasn't been the case. Uh, so that's been a surprise. One thing that surprised me in the past year, what I'm thinking about, is I recall earlier this winter, we had the freezing rain incident where the transit system essentially shut down for 30 to 40 minutes. Take me through the crisis center there. Like, do you have a dedicated pager that you just have on hand that it's like <laughs> page in case of emergencies? Do you a have pager? to sign up? What, what <laughs> year are we in? <laughs> <laughs> there's a pager there's a big red button it's you gotta you gotta stick with the classics the mechanics but how does a decision like that get made is it looped into onto your desk do you have a team like because i can't think of any time in my life where that has happened before 
So that seemed pretty novel to me. I know. I think it surprised quite a few people. Um, so I have a fabulous <laughs> team on the operation, well, in all of my sections, but on the <laughs> operation side in particular. So our 24-7 control center is led you know, by a very capable superintendent who reaches out to us to say, this is what's happened. I'm hearing directly from operators. And this is the thing I think that's important to get across. This is not a Carrie Houghton McDonald decision. It's not even a director of operations decision. This true was a decision from our operators. They were calling the, the control center saying, it's not safe and my bus is sliding into the bus stops. And is there any way that we could just pause for 30 minutes, see if this you know gets any better? Can we get some tow trucks out? Can we see if our colleagues over uh, in the snow program can come out and put some sand down, et cetera? And there were key kind of corridors where we saw a significant and very fast kind of increase in the number of collisions involving buses. So it was the combination of those two factors. So the control center saying all of a sudden we had, I forget the number, it was something like 30 collisions happened within 30 minutes. And the operators were contacting uh, control requesting that we do something. So we said to the superintendent, you know, if the recommendation is uh, to consider a pause, we will absolutely support you in that. And then we worked with communications to get it out there. So it's not something that is, you know, taken lightly. Safety is paramount. And if, you know, I'm sorry that it disrupted some journeys that day for people. And I know some people were really disappointed to see that we had done it, but I had to go with their recommendation based on safety and the circumstances. Carrie, we've covered a lot of ground here today. Thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show, as Troy said, and uh, talking with us all about transit from the operational point of view. Last time you were here, we made a prediction. I feel like we have to do that again before we let you go. So when will Valley Line Southeast open? <laughs> I'm going to go with what our partners at Transet are saying. And they're saying by the end of summer uh, that it will be operational. So that's what I'm going to go with. Oh, fingers crossed. I really hope so. It's been 97% done outside my my house downtown for months, it feels like. So I hope it's by the end of summer. Troy, any predictions? I, I think we'll see it by start of school. Uh, so September 1st-ish. Um, is that the same as end of summer? I was going to say, <laughs> <I think so. laughs> it sounds like you're agreeing with me. <laughs> I, I have a personal policy that if I'm to agree with someone, I need to phrase it in such a way that it sounds like I'm choosing something different. <laughs> Gary says end of summer. I'm going to say start of fall. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you'll come back and, uh, and find out if you were right or wrong. Absolutely. Happy to do that. Uh, well, and I think that's all for us. We like to give our guests a final segment. You, you were here before you're familiar with it. Is there anything you want to plug anything you want to share with our listeners before we let you go? I'm really happy to say that today is National Transit Operator and Transit Worker Appreciation Day. So across the country, we are thanking transit workers. And I want to just give a shout out to our transit operators and staff for the great work that they do. Uh, you can use the hashtag thank transit and show your appreciation. Our operators in particular love the kudos that we get and we share it with them in the garages and put it on display for them. So just really want to say thank you and encourage others to do the same. I always say thank you to the bus driver when I get off. Apparently that makes me, me popular on TikTok. Yeah, I do that too. I, most people do that, I think, or should do that. Well, it's an Edmontonian thing, Mac. Uh, it was very, very weird traveling to the United States. People do not thank their operators down there. Oh, that's mm. terrible. Terrible. <laughs> terrible. Thank you goes a long way. Well, uh, thank you 
Kerry, for joining us on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you. And I suppose we'll have to see you back next year. And we'll see who's right. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your local friendly utilities provider in Edmonton, which offers internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. And if you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owners, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the APN, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Carrie. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.